Okay. I think we can now start uninterrupted. So let me welcome everyone to the Middle East Institute's ME101 series. Uh, this is session four. Um, as you know, for the last two sessions, we the second session looked at the Gulf states because we are considering the geopolitics of the Middle East region. We looked first at the Gulf states. Last week, we took a look at, we considered the case of Turkey and Iran and Russia as an external player. I think we cannot talk about the Middle East and external players without looking at the role of China. And next week, we will look at the role of the United States. Um, looking at China, I'd say a few things. One, if you look at how they, their presence in the Middle East in the last decade, you can see that they have increased their economic and political reach. Um, the relationship does not revolve exclusively around energy. Um, you know, uh, there are other economic interests and you can see this in the Belt and Road Initiative, which was intended to increase trade communication and infrastructure development. But Beijing is very careful about getting entangled in the Middle East and North Africa. They have seen the problems that the United States has faced, that the United Kingdom has faced, that even Russia has faced. They've seen the problems that Turkey has, is also, has also faced. Um, now, there's been a lot of debate, and we can look at this again next week, about the United States' presence and its security umbrella, which is shifting. That doesn't mean to say that China would be eager to increase its security footprint. I mean, I, I think, honestly, its goal is to, is to support the status quo. Thus, you can see in the region that the Chinese approach is very much a cautious approach. Um, and... A lot of the driver is economics driven. It's not just about getting the resources. It is also about exporting Chinese technology and knowledge. Right. So let me now hand over to uh, our speaker today. Dr. Alessandra Ardino is a, is, the, is a principal research fellow at the Middle East Institute um, and is also the co-director of the Security and Crisis Management International Center at the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences. He's a former diplomat, speaks Mandarin fluently, uh, has two decades of experience in China, and this has encompassed security analysis and crisis management. His main research interests include China, Central Asia, the, and uh, the China, Central and Middle East and North Africa relations, sovereign wealth funds, private military security companies, and China's security and foreign policy. Um, he's the author of several books, having published both in, well, not just both. He has published in Italian, in English, and in Mandarin. And his most recent book is China's Private Army, Protecting the New Silk Road. So before I hand over to Alex, uh, let me just set down the ground rules. We have muted everyone, and we ask you to keep your cameras off because the focus should really be on the speaker. Alex will speak for about 40 minutes, after which we will unmute everyone so that you may ask your questions. You have two options. My preferred option is that you raise your hand so that I can identify you and put you into the queue. Um, and uh, when you actually uh, are called, you, it, would be, it would be good if you could turn on your camera so that Alex can actually see who he's speaking with. Um, and when you do uh, ask your question, before you do that, introduce yourself. Okay? So for now, you all are on mute and we ask you to keep your cameras off. Let me hand over now to Alex. Take over, Alex, the floor is yours. 
Michelle, thank you very much uh, for the two kind introduction. I will just start talking about China in the Middle East, uh, uh, starting where, where you were mentioning uh, China uh, is interest in preserving the status quo. Uh, first of all, let's say, what's the point of the relationship about China and the Middle East? If we are looking at uh, the last 10 years, and by Middle East, uh, I would like to encompass uh, MENA region, Middle East and North Africa. China has uh, progressively increased uh, its uh, economic and political footprint in the region. Uh, security is still uh, yet to be seen and yet to come. Uh, in the West, and especially uh, in the last few years, when we have been witnessing a shift in the security architecture of the Middle East, with the United States repositioning its military forces, there has been a lot of call looking at China and considering China an unwilling security provider uh, or even a provider of security that cannot reach the same level proposed by the United States. But if we look at the academic output in mainland China, the, the discourse uh, in the last few years is not much different. Uh, most of the Chinese uh, academicians, they underline basically to think uh, relating to the Middle East, uh, to avoid China entangling in the Middle East quagmire. And uh, even uh, if it referred to other area nearby, like Afghanistan, avoiding China getting into the so-called graveyard of empires. Uh, preserving the status quo is not going to be easy as the uh, challenges in the Middle East uh, are increasing, not only related to the above-mentioned above uh, change in the security architecture, but also to the economic problem that we are going to see increasing in the future due to the fall of oil prices and to COVID-19. Uh, saying that, uh, I would like to, to repeat myself a lot of time during this presentation, underline one thing. What China is still striving to achieve in the Middle East, uh, let's say, is a kind of balancing act. What does it mean that? China is trying to enact uh, a strategy in one country that doesn't create friction or create problem with the other country. Let's say is one of the few countries, probably the only one, who is managing relation with Saudi Arabia, Iran, Israel, and at the same time trying to avoid greater friction with the United States. Uh, Middle East has not to be taken in a vacuum, but uh, there is a strong uh, geographical link that uh, connects China with the region. And is not only with North Africa, it's also with the Horn of Africa, with South Asia, Afghanistan and Pakistan, and with even Central Asia. And all this connection basically is related uh, to the 2013 uh, Belt and Road Initiative. What is the Belt and Road Initiative? In a nutshell, uh, President Xi Jinping in 2013 presented in Kazakhstan at the Nazarbayev University this vision of economic investment, trade, uh, and improving uh, connection between regions. The Middle East, uh, it's very important. That's the reason why uh, since 2013, there has been uh, a profound increase of Chinese direct investment in port, highway, railway, but also the Middle East is still very important for China for one main reason, 
and its China energy security. Uh, in early 90s, uh, if I recall correct, 1993, China became a net importer of energy. And the Middle East uh, nowadays, just in this year, uh, offer 40% of oil, crude oil to, to China, 20% of gas, and it's quite important for Chinese energy security. Of course, China has already a plan B and plan C in action in order to diversify its own energy footprint, uh, not only to be uh, linked with the Middle East, uh, but also uh, from the pure oil point of view, uh, the oil output from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, are uh, quite uh, essential. Uh, even in a post-COVID uh, situation. Uh, having said that, uh, what are the trajectory of Chinese foreign policy? China foreign policy is still anchored uh, to the decade-old five principles of peaceful coexistence. Uh, one of the most important in these five principles is the principle of non-interference. And this means, uh, as we just mentioned at the beginning, of uh, this presentation is the fact that China is not interested to change the status quo. BRI try to present and enhance regional integration, but then again, uh, as I said before, China is always trying to strike a balancing act to the fact that is recognized by the Middle East country as a very important uh, uh, economic partner, but at the same time, uh, the Middle East country recognized the fact that China cannot offer the kind of security partnership that uh, the United States are offering. One of the problems, in my personal opinion, that I always witness looking at the interaction, not only in the Middle East, but also in the other area with the Burton Road, uh, is the fact that several countries have different perception and expectation about what China is going to offer. And of course, uh, uh, especially after COVID-19 impact on Chinese economy, uh, we still have to question how much of the proposed Belt and Road is going to be enacted in the year to come. Uh, quite important for the Middle East is the fact that China proposes a development model that is not related to a democratic development. China is looking at a model that promotes development with economic investment uh, at the core of its foreign policy. So basically, we can summarize that uh, China foreign policy now in the Middle East and along the Belt and Road is an investment-centric approach to foreign policy. Very pragmatical, but if we look uh, at uh, Chinese history with the Middle East, uh, is not been the case. And this is uh, not been the case for quite a while. Uh, I would like now to use some minute of this presentation uh, just to underline uh, that uh, Chinese relations with the Middle East uh, are not only related to energy and to economics uh, of the last 10 years, but also China has a profound uh, interaction with the area. Now is not the place uh, nor the time to talk about the relation between the Chinese Empire and the Persian Empire. But if we just look uh, uh, at the beginning, in 1949, uh, the relation with MENA region, especially with North Africa, 
and uh, quite marginal uh, with, uh, with the Middle East, it was not related to economic partnership. At that time, uh, even considering the fact uh, that uh, we were getting into the Cold War and then uh, there were two very clear sides and China was siding uh, with the Soviet Union, at that time, China's uh, relationship with the Middle East was related to struggle against imperialism and against colonialism, and it was uh, very ideological. So if we want to segment uh, the historical development of the People's Republic of China interaction with the Middle East, uh, we can divide it basically in, uh, in, three, in three segments. The first one, 1949, uh, 1979, and 1979 is quite important data uh, to remember. As I mentioned, it was basically a struggle against uh, imperialism. But uh, this uh, support for militia and for government, for example, at the time, China was very active in supporting in Algeria, the FLN movement, uh, Front de Liberation Nationale. Uh, it was quite near to Egypt uh, with the uh, polit of Pan-Arabism enacted by Kamal Nasser. And uh, even at the end of the 70s, was uh, active in supporting in Oman, the Dofari uh, Marxist uh, uh, revolutionary group. And this uh, relationship uh, uh, with uh, Marxist uh, militia all over the, the Gulf and in North Africa uh, poisoned for many years uh, the relationship uh, with the Gulf monarchies. Of course, uh, in the 50s uh, until the 70s, uh, uh, China was perceiving Gulf monarchies uh, uh, as still a result uh, of colonialism, but then uh, this started to change. Uh, the second part, uh, historical part of the relation between China and the Middle East uh, can be set uh, in a date from, let's say, 1979 to uh, 2012. So we have uh, uh, all the, the time as uh, uh, in China uh, from Deng Xiaoping, uh, uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao. And during the time, uh, there has been a change that uh, basically framed the future relation of China with the Middle East. In China, being more cautious and being more selective in the support and the participation. For example, an interesting moment can be seen uh, from uh, the beginning of the Iraq-Iran uh, war in the 80s, in which China was providing weapons to both sides of the battlefield. And not as the case, for example, for Algeria that was uh, giving hardware and training for free, but this time it was just a commercial enterprise. At the same time, as I mentioned before, there was still a quite profound distrust between uh, the Gulf monarchies and the People's Republic of China. But after 1979, uh, both in during the Iraq war and then uh, in the 80s and in the 79 uh, with the rise uh, of uh, theocracy in Iran with Islamic revolution, the Gulf started uh, to look uh, at the People's Republic of China in a different way. For example, uh, in the 1980s uh, during the Iraq-Iran war, both countries, they were using uh, Soviet SCAD missile. Uh, and Saudi Arabia was looking at this missile flying over and over and basically was trying to acquire a deterrence from the United States. 
uh, at the time, if I recall correct, uh, the long-range missile, mid-range missile was the Pershing. Uh, but uh, uh, Israel was not, uh, uh, let's say, willing to have Saudi Arabia acquire that kind of advanced military technology. So uh, behind the radar, under the radar, uh, Saudi Arabia started uh, to have a talk in terms of military exchange with the People's Republic of China. Uh, and this change uh, led uh, to uh, uh, acquiring by Kingdom of Saudi Arabia of several Dongfang uh, uh, ballistic missiles. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was Model 3 that up to now has been upgraded until Model 21. And still in these days, China-Saudi Arabia relation that changes, that improves, that are getting better, is still related as a kind of bargaining chip. If Saudi Arabia is not able to acquire military technology from the United States, then China is a willing provider for this technology. And that's specifically during this year, the case uh, of combat uh, unmanned aerial vehicle. Uh, if you move uh, uh, to the third part of the historical evolution of the relationship between uh, China and the Middle East uh, is from 2012 up to now. Uh, 2013, as I mentioned before, was the incipit of the Belt and Road Initiative. And then progressively China enrolled uh, into the Middle East uh, started to be not only related to energy, but to trade. China is one of the main trade partner of all the country in the region. Uh, and then investment, investment in infrastructure, uh, investment in railroad, uh, in connection in the energy sector. China uh, is already talking with Saudi Arabia for, uh, pro to, to provide uh, a nuclear reactor. Uh, uh, it has been a nuclear reactor provider for Iran for a certain amount of time. But as I mentioned before, all these actions are balanced not only between China and the Middle East, uh, Iran, Gulf country, uh, and Israel, but especially to the perception that the United States have in uh, China relation with the Middle East. Uh, if you want to look more deeper in what are going to be the trajectory of this uh, economic relation, I strongly advise you to take a look uh, at the China-Arab uh, white paper. It's a policy paper uh, presented in 2016 and basically summarizes uh, uh, what I was mentioning before as a balancing act. Uh, during the presentation of the paper, uh, Chinese Foreign Affairs Minister Wang Yi mentioned that uh, the turmoil in the Middle East uh, is rooted in lack of development, economic development, and then economic development uh, is the cure uh, for the, the crisis. Of course, uh, we can mention also that you can have economic development if you have uh, security in the area. Without security, then it would be really difficult uh, to enact uh, any kind uh, of, uh, of this kind uh, of uh, development. But uh, in Chinese uh, uh, foreign policy, as I mentioned before, one of the pillars is uh, the principle of non-interference. And uh, basically, this principle is still here, but is slowly changing. It's slowly adapting to the fact that China is increasing its economic footprint. Uh, there are, uh, I think, more than uh, a million of Chinese workers in all over the, the MENA region. Uh, and uh, as already happened in the 2011 in Libya, for example, China had to exfiltrate very fast its own national during the collapse of uh, Muammar Gaddafi regime. 
as mentioned before, China is aiming to have a kind of developmental peace, uh, not uh, a democratic peace. And in some respect, uh, it can play quite well uh, in, in the Middle East, as there are no strings attached related to reform and the democratic process. Uh, the only problem from the United States arising for the BRI is that the BRI is increasing in the Middle East uh, is a footprint. This footprint is not only economical, it can be political, beside the fact uh, that up to now China still denies that the BRI, the initiative, is a strategic plan. It's just an initiative, but then we can have a long talk uh, about this. Uh, what uh, is worrying the United States is that the BRI uh, is creating an economic uh, trade network that is linking different regions, and this network is outside the control of the United States. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, this balancing act is not only China's own balance act, but also the Middle East country. That they are trying to balance China's greater capacity to invest, especially in a post-COVID-19 economic situation. But this balance of great capacity to invest is also linked to the fact that China has a severe limitation as a security provider. In this respect now, I would like just to give three brief examples how this uh, is working, looking at three areas. First area is uh, the relationship between China and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, then moving to the one between China and Israel, and then shifting briefly uh, with China and Iran. And then after, I would like to, to have the floor open and uh, to interact with you with your question and answer. Mentioned at the beginning, the foundation of the relationship uh, with China and the Gulf countries, especially with Saudi Arabia, is in energy. Uh, I think just this year is the 30th year of the establishment of the diplomatic relation between the Kingdom and the People's Republic of China. Uh, this is quite important because uh, we can see that uh, uh, there was more, almost 40 years before the two countries recognized each other. As I mentioned, first part, 1949-1979, there is a profound distrust, uh, especially for the Chinese support uh, to, to post-colonial struggle, and uh, in the Gulf, in Oman, uh, with the Dofari uh, insurrection. But then, uh, slowly, uh, the relationship from marginal become uh, comprehensive, and from comprehensive become a comprehensive strategic partnership. Uh, I have to underline the fact that since uh, 1982, China doesn't have allegiance with other countries, but have uh, economic partnership. The highest level of economic partnership is a comprehensive strategic economic partnership. And it's quite interesting because uh, the time, and if I recall, was 2016, in which uh, China signed uh, uh, the comprehensive partnership uh, uh, with the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, just after uh, President Xi Jinping uh, terminated his uh, trip in Saudi Arabia, he moved to Tehran, signing the same comprehensive strategic partnership with Iran, balancing this twat across the Gulf. And up to now, both countries are trying to make China, to force China to uh, take a stance from one side or the other, but Chinese uh, economic uh, 
power still enabled the country to, to be a balancing actor and to be in the middle. But as I mentioned before, if we look at contemporary relation with Saudi Arabia, energy, yes, it's very important, but China also is the most important trade partner, a very important partner for investment. And then uh, the Chinese uh, investment policy uh, with the Saudi Arabia economy have a lot of overlapping. There is a, a, a quite important complementarity to the fact that the BRI promote investment and the Saudi have launched the, the Saudi Vision 2030. So there is a synergy in acquiring Chinese technology uh, and utilizing joint fund to invest abroad. Saudi have been allowed to invest in the downstream sector of oil refining in China. And this not only now, it happened, if I recall correct, uh, during the, the visit of uh, King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz in, uh, in Beijing uh, in 2006. And then, of course, uh, China is interested in a good relationship with Saudi, also in a matter of soft power for the Saudi prominence uh, uh, in the global Islam. Uh, having said that, uh, uh, during, for example, King Abdullah visit in Beijing and this uh, increased uh, reapproachment between uh, Saudi Arabia and the People's Republic of China, we don't have to forget uh, that it was a time uh, in which the United States uh, with uh, George W. Bush uh, were looking uh, at a kind of democratic process in the Middle East. So this was also a signal from Saudi Arabia to the US ally that China could be an option. So as I mentioned, balancing act not only from China, but also from the Middle East country that can use China as a bargaining chip to obtain more or to obtain better from the United States. The case of the combat drone is not an isolated case as Saudi Arabia, like UAE has been looking for quite a long time to acquire Predator and Reaper US uh, very high-tech drone, but instead they opted for the Winlon and the new model uh, Tsaihong that has been going to be produced in, in Saudi Arabia and sold uh, in other country, nearby country from Egypt to, to Jordania. Uh, quite important uh, is with Saudi Arabia is not only the fact uh, that China have a comprehensive strategic partnership, but China also launched uh, a very high level uh, uh, discussion uh, and joint mechanism uh, to uh, provide a new kind of uh, joint investment and perspective. And the uh, leader from the Saudi Arabia part of uh, this joint investment uh, and joint high level uh, uh, group is uh, Mohammed bin Salman himself. Having said that, uh, shifting the perspective from uh, Saudi Arabia to Israel, uh, the story is quite similar. But we are not talking about energy as a pillar. Uh, Israel was quite late to recognize diplomatically uh, in China, as it happened with Saudi Arabia. But it doesn't mean that there was no relationship before. There was a strong relationship before 1992, uh, the date in which Israel recognized the diplomatical relation with the People's Republic of China. And at the time, uh, it was a relationship based on uh, 
transfer of uh, military technology from Israel to China. Uh, we don't have to discount, uh, historically speaking, uh, that Chinese uh, have uh, a quite uh, good, uh, good perception of uh, the Jewish culture, and there is an importance of power that play in, in, uh, in this respect. But at the time, uh, in, in the 80s, uh, until 90s and, and later on, China recognized uh, Israel as a key player, security player in the Middle East. And uh, Israeli technology has been uh, uh, a quite important driver in the relationship between the two countries up to now. Of course, uh, this uh, relationship uh, has been always uh, a triangular one because uh, the United States are in the middle and up to now, uh, they are pushing Israel to have even less uh, economic relationship and accept uh, less investment uh, from the BRI in uh, Israeli port, especially the one in Haifa. Uh, Israel started uh, uh, in 1979 to have uh, informal ties uh, with, uh, with the People's Republic of China. Uh, but uh, the increase uh, was uh, not only in 92 during the formal diplomatic relation between the two parties, but in the transfer of military equipment, as I just mentioned. Uh, there was a quite strong halt that happened in the year 2000, in which uh, the United States became very vocal in avoiding uh, Israel uh, delivering high-grade military equipment to, to China. And that was related essentially to two cases. The one of the Falcon early airborne uh, radar system, and the second, it was a drone technology, the Harpy drone technology. But uh, we can see that during the year, even after the year 2000, up to now, the economic relationship between China and Israel has been quite strong and has been growing. One uh, tangible proof of this can be seen in 2015, when uh, uh, Israel uh, immediately joined uh, AIIB, uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. It's a bank led by the People's Republic of China. And uh, uh, the US strongly opposed to that, but Israel jumped in with uh, several other countries. Uh, what is the relationship now, the main driver between the two countries? I think it can be well summarized uh, by President, uh, the, the, sorry, the Prime Minister uh, Benji, Benjamin Netanyahu when he returned back to Israel after a trip in China in, uh, in 2013. And Netanyahu mentioned that China is interested mainly in three things for China. The first thing is Israeli technology. The second thing is Israeli technology. And the third thing is Israeli technology. So uh, in this startup nation, the so-called Silicon Wadi, there is a lot of overlapping and synergy with the Chinese desire that is quite well uh, uh, proponed in China, Made in China policy, Made in China 2025. The fact that China needs to increase uh, research and development, uh, industrial output, uh, and uh, Israel as a startup nation uh, is one of the preferential partners in doing so. So the, to summarize, uh, the core point of the cooperation between Israel and China are cooperation in acquiring advanced uh, research and development technology from Israel, 
uh, access uh, to the Chinese market from the Israel side, uh, acquiring uh, top-notch technology, especially the one related to software, uh, cyber defense, uh, cyber technology. Uh, of course, the geostrategical role of Israel, that Israel have in the Middle East, and uh, in terms of geographical space, uh, Israel is also one of the pillars of the BRI if we look at the connection between uh, the Red Sea and the Mediter Mediterranean. As I mentioned before, uh, one important part, uh, even if it's not uh, well documented most of the time, is the Jewish cultures of power that still uh, have uh, a long tradition in, uh, in China. But these are the positive part. What are the constraints? And similar, there are several constraints in the relationship with Saudi Arabia and China. Mainly, uh, the constraint between China and Israel relationship are first and foremost uh, the dual use export of technology that can be have a civilian use or a military use. The increasing pressure from the year 2000, and especially now uh, from the United States, uh, to delink to the couple from the economic embrace with the People's Republic of China. Then, of course, uh, there is the Chinese position that it's also an economic partner with Iran, with Saudi Arabia. And the long-standing, since the 1949 position, sorry, uh, in the 70s, uh, position uh, of China uh, in favor of the Palestinian cause and, uh, and the PLO. Uh, having said that, uh, there are even friction between the development of the BRI. Uh, recently, uh, there was a desalinization water plant that have to be acquired by the Chinese state-owned company and uh, was uh, denied uh, the sale to, to China, and this kind of friction. But besides that, uh, both countries are playing uh, uh, quite well the, their balancing act in uh, the region, and uh, uh, with, uh, with the United States. I think uh, so I will be uh, basically uh, more quick in, in dealing with the fact that still Iran is uh, managing pretty well the relation uh, uh, with Iran. And it's quite interesting because as I mentioned before, China has always been uh, a very cautious balancing actor, but with Iran was not the case. Uh, before 1979, China was uh, uh, increasing its investment and trade cooperation with Shah. And at the time, if I recall correct, uh, in the early 60s, even Joan Lai had a visit in the country to increase the, the cooperation. But after 1979, thanks uh, at the time uh, to uh, Premier Hua Guofang, uh, China managed to shift very fast from the Shah to the uh, Ayatollah Khamenei just reaching power, and then it started uh, a quite long-standing relation uh, with Iran. Again, uh, it's an economic balanced relation that take into consideration the role of the United States. Uh, if you see that uh, China still have the chance to acquire Iranian oil when uh, the USA move out uh, from the JCPOA, but uh, decreases gradually uh, acquiring oil from Iran, and at the same time increasing uh, the buy from Saudi Arabia and even from, uh, from Iraq. 
uh, I'm sure everybody have been listening uh, during the, the latest uh, weeks uh, about the MOU that surfaced between uh, uh, Iran and, uh, and China. In my opinion, uh, that MOU, especially all the media that has been growing up, media discourse around it, is basically making uh, a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, what I say with that, it was nothing secret. Uh, it was uh, an output of President Xi Jinping visit uh, in 2016, at the time in which everybody were considering Iran a possible trade partner. We don't have to forget that it was a time in which there was a moderate government with Rouhani, uh, President Obama in the United States. And then there was this idea that Iran would abide by the rule and there would be an opening. Uh, it was not the case, especially after the US moved out and increased the maximum pressure on sanction on Iran. But then uh, what this MOU, at least what this uh, uh, note that surfaced out are telling us that energy is still important, that China in the next 25 years is going to increase investment in rail, port, uh, even in the subway. But an important part uh, is going to be telecommunication, satellite, 5G. So there, Iran uh, doesn't have many choice in choosing Huawei or not choosing Huawei as the case of Israel and the uh, case in the future of Saudi Arabia or UAE, for example. But having said that, uh, uh, it was not the fact that Iran uh, was forced to gravitate to the economic lifeline given by the People's Republic of China. Mostly uh, after the maximum pressure policy enacted by President Trump, Iran realized that, that Europe, the European Union, was uh, no more an option. Uh, an interesting part uh, is that uh, in the MOU, military cooperation with Iran is mentioned, but definitely we are not going to see an Iranian-Chinese military access because still uh, China is not interested in creating friction, more friction with Israel or even with Saudi or, or the UAE. Uh, on this respect, up to now, China is abiding to most uh, of the sanctions. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we can see in the number a collapse in the trade of oil between uh, China and Iran and a counter increase with Saudi and, uh, and with Iraq. And uh, I think that basically I'm uh, around the, the, the 40 minutes that I was uh, allowed to give my presentation. Uh, just let me uh, summarize basically what I said before. Uh, China principle of non-interference is there. It's going to change. It's not going to change fast. Several Chinese academicians are already promoting a kind of uh, selective interference, of selective participation. But then again, China uh, is not going to have partnership that are rooted in common shared value, but are rooted in economic cooperation at the time. If we look, for example, of the relationship now between US and Saudi Arabia, again, we can see that it's a partnership that is not rooted in common shared value. But then the difference with China is that definitely the gap with China is, is quite narrow compared to the one with, uh, with the United States. And with this, Michelle, I give you the floor back to you. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. That's very interesting. I think what was interesting is to know is really the, the key point in all this, I think, is 
how does China find the balance between what are its interests and what uh, what inevitably could happen that it cannot completely stay out of what it sees as a quagmire. I know that there have been policy papers written in Beijing with the government that have said that this is not the place to go into, but it is, uh, there is a market there, you know, uh, and it is also um, a place where there is technology and resources that they are interested in. So uh, with that, let me open the floor now for questions. Uh, if you could raise your hand uh, and then I will, I will call you. Uh, we will also unmute you so that you can ask your question. I'd ask you to also turn on your camera. Do identify yourself uh, when you actually address your question to Alessandro. Hmm. Okay, uh, Chen Wu, you can ask your question. Uh, Hao Chen, you can ask your question. Okay, go ahead and ask your question, please. You are on mute. We can't hear uh, you. Yeah, I'm okay. mute. So basically, my question is like... Can I ask you where I, you are from? Uh, I'm from Tamasic Polytechnic. Okay. Yeah, so my question is like... I have two main questions. So my first question is that which particular cities in China has like, has like more trade with the Middle East. Yeah, that's one of my questions. And my second question is that also similar, what countries in the Middle East, particularly I'm more concerned about countries like Qatar, like UAE, these countries are they are with China. Okay, uh, thank you very much for your question. Uh, I didn't listen properly the, the, the first part, uh, uh, but uh, uh, if you're asking about the trade, China trade in the Middle East uh, and the second part, the country like UAE and how uh, are they trade partner. Uh, I'll choose Saudi Arabia uh, as an example in the Gulf, uh, uh, mainly because uh, uh, there are several overlapping uh, uh, complementarity with other country. So what I mentioned before uh, for the Saudi Arabia, it can be used uh, essentially for UAE. Uh, China uh, is still uh, an important partner with uh, the UAE uh, and uh, the partnership uh, is a comprehensive strategic partnership. It's not only related to oil, uh, but uh, Abu Dhabi is looking at Chinese investment in the area Pre-COVID-19, tourism was uh, quite important, finance, uh, but then uh, still uh, 5G, ICT, satellite and space program uh, are uh, in between. Now, a good question I have to see, uh, and I don't have an answer because we are talking on something that just happened the 13th of this month, uh, is how the relationship uh, between UAE, Israel, and the United States are going to change the relationship with China. Is the normalization of the UAE uh, diplomatic relation with Israel a game changer? 
because uh, most, uh, again, of the media report uh, has been looking at uh, this triangular relation in opposition to Iran. But definitely, in my opinion, there is also a Chinese angle in which uh, the U.S. Uh, can try uh, to increase uh, uh, the UAE uh, unwillingness to cooperate, uh, economically speaking, with the People's Republic of China. So UAE uh, already uh, realized this early on a shift in the security arena and in the security architecture, uh, but then have to balance the fact that security is provided by the US and economic is in China hand. So UAE still is a very important partner and still have to look uh, at uh, maintaining maritime security, even with the uh, US uh, rebalancing of its own forces. And uh, from the security part, one of the questions now is that UAE is looking to acquire the F-35S from the United States. Uh, and Israel, even if it's normalizing the relation, is not uh, willing, at least on paper, to accept this kind of weapon cell in order to keep uh, a military age in, uh, in the region. So definitely, if we're still looking at uh, uh, trade, China uh, is the main partner. Uh, and that there are not going to be uh, a different or, or big and change in the future. But uh, in my personal opinion, uh, the role, uh, the next battle will not be played uh, in the transfer of military hardware, but uh, it will be played uh, uh, on the digital iron curtain that is slowing the sanding uh, in the area. And it will be a binary choice to choose uh, Huawei, to choose uh, Chinese 5G and communication technology, or avoiding doing that. And there are countries like UAE that still have uh, an option to do it, countries like Iran that have definitely less option. And I hope that uh, I understand and answer properly your question. Thank you. I actually find that rather interesting okay. what you're talking about you. now, uh, Alex, on the, um, the whole issue of um, uh, the digital platform and where that, that will play out. Um, you know, I think you cannot ignore the fact that um, all these countries, Saudi Arabia, even Qatar, the UAE, uh, you know, particularly Israel, uh, in many ways they are caught between uh, the dynamic between China and the US, you know. And I think that really is, is uh, you know, it is a, is a balancing act that they have to, that they have to manage, but so do the Chinese in wanting to go into the region, you know. Correct. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, can I see if there's anyone else who would like to ask a question? Maybe when there are some questions that are, are being still uh, in process, I can a little bit talk uh, for a couple of minutes on what you just mentioned, Michelle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is uh, an important part. Uh, COVID-19, uh, uh, underlined uh, weakness uh, in economic model, especially in uh, the movement of goods uh, between countries. Uh, we all realize that our economy, global economy, is not a linear economy, it's a nodal economy. And COVID-19 blocked several nodes, increasing problematic distribution of goods. Uh, the digital part, is growing, it's very important. I mean, today we are the living example of it because today lesson is not live, is online. So uh, the cyber part, uh, not only in terms of cybersecurity, 
but in terms of uh, e-commerce and about advancement in technology, AI and big data, uh, I'm not going to say is the is going to be the future, is the future. And who controls the data, the data flow and the data analysis is going to control the majority of the new economy. And in this invite, US and China are progressing quite fast in development uh, uh, quantum computer. Uh, but uh, the most important part uh, is to find regions that are going to willingly accept one technology instead of the other. So you're going to increase have more big data uh, and uh, an, an exponential amount of data. A few years ago, I don't remember correctly, it was 2016 or 2015, the amount of data generated by sensor, uh, it was uh, the same amount of data generated by humankind in all history. So this is the trend. And whoever controlled this data flow is going to control the future of the economy. Uh, and having said that, it's quite important because uh, the BRI, especially in the Middle East, is evolving toward the so-called digital Silk Road, in which connection is not only highway, is not only port, uh, but it's also connectivity by fiber optic. And who is going to control the fiber optic definitely is going to edge uh, not only an economic advantage, but all an information advantage, and at the end, uh, a military security advantage. But I cannot see how the Chinese can can actually best the Americans on that front, you know. Because I don't see that the Americans are going to be any less engaged in the region, whether it is militarily or economically. And technologically, they are far ahead, you know. I mean, if you look at all the analysis about China, it has a long way to go to catch up with the US. You know? So, I mean, apart from Iran, you know, I, I don't see that any of the others would, you know, would naturally pick China over over the U.S. You know, and there is the security element. You know. You know. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the security element is extremely important. Uh, but then again, we have seen a balancing act that is related to a rising economic power and uh, yeah. a security power balancer that is the United States. And the United States, uh, especially with President Trump, but it already started with President Obama, was sure. already pivoting to the East in terms of security. Uh, I don't agree uh, with some theory that the US is going to abandon or leave the Middle East. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. US have an important military base there in Bahrain, in Qatar. Uh, but basically, uh, US uh, is moving to its former role of offshore security provider. So yeah. it will be there, it will be a guarantor, but it's not going to have uh, uh, the boot of the ground footprint uh, that it has already now. China is not going overnight uh, to uh, insert in the security vacuum that uh, is being left by the United States, but China, especially in a post-COVID uh, economic crisis has still uh, some mean to operate in the region and to make uh, the economic choice of the Middle East state uh, uh, quite uh, compelled in avoiding friction, not only with the United States, but with Beijing also. Agree. We've got a question. Uh, someone has asked, China is now in a position where its strategic rival, the United States, is effectively the security guarantor of its energy supply lines. How long can a country that seeks power with another tolerate this situation? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting question. We have to look uh, at the fact that uh, 
in the, in the last more than 10 years, uh, China has been accused in being a free rider of the United States security umbrella, not only in the sea lane and the freedom of navigation, that it's a public good that was supported by the US, but also in other area. And in this respect, I mentioned, for example, Afghanistan. Uh, China is increasing the People Liberation Army Navy capacity in operating in blue water uh, in the area that are strategic to China uh, energy security interests. Specifically in the Middle East, I'm talking about the Gulf of Aden, the Canal of Suez and Bab al-Mandeb. And then, as we are here in Singapore, Malacca Strait also is another choke point. China is increasing this capacity and for the first time opened a military base outside its border in Djibouti. Djibouti, geographically speaking, is in the African continent, but uh, Djibouti, Somalia, Sudan, Eritrea have a strong cultural connection, affinity, uh, between the Horn of Africa and, uh, and the Middle East. So basically being in Djibouti is also overlooking at the other side, this Yemen. Uh, China has not been uh, a strong, uh, uh, it didn't participate actively uh, in, the, in the Yemen uh, conflict. Uh, it's always appealed to the United Nations. Even uh, in, uh, in Yemen, in a very cold when there was the unification between South Yemen and North Yemen, it didn't oppose uh, at the time uh, the, uh, the rise of uh, Salek to the fact that even in the South, uh, it was a Marxist uh, group that, uh, that was uh, operating. Uh, in Yemen, uh, China is not uh, very active. It left to the, to the Saudi uh, UAE and uh, the other Gulf monarchy. Uh, to uh, provide the security part. But on the other side of uh, the Horn of Africa in Djibouti, he started to be more proactive, especially participating to the international peacekeeping operation against uh, Somali pirates. That's quite important. China, with the caveat, China participated in the operation, what was not uh, uh, complemented together with the other uh, Navy. It operated alone and it was also providing security to the commercial, non-Chinese commercial vessel that were uh, moving altogether with the military escort. Uh, Djibouti is the first military base, but this is a trend. There is another base that is in Tajikistan, and this underlines the importance of Central Asia and connecting Central Asia, South Asia, and, uh, and the Middle East uh, together. Um. Okay, we've got a question from one of our colleagues. Asif has a question. Asif, you have the floor. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, Alex. Uh, uh, my question to you is uh, uh, something that I have been uh, thinking for quite some time. Uh, in 2003, uh, Xi Jinping assumed power in China, and uh, in 2013, I mean 2013, he assumed power, and in, in the same year, he uh, propounded the idea of uh, uh, Silk Road Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, whereas the Silk Road we have been hearing for about 2,000 years. So my question to you is uh, because again this Belt and Road Initiative, China has been ta talking in terms of far, far ahead future. So how much is this initiative linked with the personality of Xi Jinping? 
and in terms of looking into future what could we think about the future of this initiative after after his reign is over uh, thank you so much dr shuja thank you very much uh, for uh, for your question uh, now you are asking me basically to glaze at the crystal ball uh, before doing that uh, uh, let's look at uh, 2013 uh, President Xi Jinping started his term in 2012, and in 2013, when he was visiting Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan and talking with President Nazarbayev, he uh, expressed the vision of uh, the Eurasia economic uh, uh, belt. Later on, during the same year, when he moved to Indonesia, he then analyzed and expressed the vision of the 21st century maritime Silk Road. Uh, it was quite a long title that uh, a couple of years later was uh, uh, streamlined uh, in Obor, one belt, one road. But then at the time uh, they realized that there were more than one belt and the belt was on the land and more than one road and the road was on the sea. So at the end uh, it arrived in 2015, 2016, uh, uh, with the definition of the new Silk Road. Silk Road have been there for a really long time and interact, I see the uh, goods moving from China to Europe uh, at the time, uh, but it was a completely different uh, set. Why I say this? First and foremost, uh, the name Silk Road uh, arrived uh, just a few hundred years uh, ago uh, by a German geographer. At the time, there, yes, they were selling silk, but most importantly, they were selling spice, they were selling porcelain, moving in caravanserai in areas that are now Central Asia, Bukhara, Samarkand, and so on. But the biggest difference at the time was in one point. There was a need from one side, and there was an offer of good from the other side. This time, China not only have the goods, but have the capital to pay for the need. And this is, in my personal opinion, one of the big difference, because the Belta Road can provide financing for attracting Chinese investment project. And uh, is the Belt and Road an important part of President Xi Jinping foreign policy? The answer, this can be very straightforward. Yes, it's President Xi Jinping flagship foreign policy. In this respect, uh, even if China is going to have a bigger problem, economical problem uh, due to COVID-19, the trust that the Belt and Road uh, is having is going to be there, but there will be a selection process uh, in where the investment are going to be located. And this selection process uh, not only started now, thanks to COVID-19, but it's already started a few years ago uh, when uh, Beijing was calling for investment that can have a return, not just investment that are going to lose money or to just create friction with, uh, with the local government. So having said that, you, you're going to witness the expansion of the Belt and Road, not only in pure trade and uh, investment term in promoting connectivity, but also in the digital side and with COVID-19 in the new so-called Health Silk Road. Having said that, there is an increasing number of friction with the local investment. As I mentioned before, there is a quite big uh, differentiation in the perception of what China wants and what China can give for the country that receives Chinese capital 
uh, also Chinese worker, because most of the time uh, uh, the money is just moving from Beijing, investment bank, Exim Bank, uh, PBOC, and so on, uh, to state-owned enterprises. And also there is a question uh, if there are even other uh, enterprises from China that are private, where the state part finish and when the private one start, because we are always talking about uh, uh, capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And it definitely is not something that we are used, uh, and when I mean we, I, I mean the West. And with this, I hope to have uh, briefly addressed uh, uh, your question. Uh, glazing uh, about the crystal ball in the future of the Belt and Road, uh, then again, it's very difficult to say, especially now uh, with COVID-19, but then again, it's still part uh, of the Chinese policy, uh, foreign policy of uh, banking diplomacy or investment economic diplomacy. And this uh, is uh, playing well in several areas in the Middle East, especially to the fact that it is not going to pretend a change of the status quo if uh, the country receives Chinese money. But don't forget that this money is not uh, a free string attached money. Great, thank you. Okay, I want to, there's another question that was asked and it, it revolves around this whole issue of technology. Yeah? And uh, the, the question of 5G. Um, is technology the, great, the next great power battlefield in the Middle East? The GCC has embarked on a transformation project at which digitization is a major part. 5G is central to this effort. But will the Clean Network Initiative force the Gulf nations to choose between uh, China, uh, embodied by Huawei, and the US? Yes, this uh, is already happening, this friction. Uh, we just look at the number of uh, foreign uh, visits that Mr. Pompeo did in the, in the last month in, uh, in the Middle East. That's quite important. And basically, it was an out-out in saying with us or against us. But then all the countries that could take time and still looking at possible uh, alternative or having it at the same time. As I mentioned before, Iran has less chance to make this choice, but if you look at other areas that are uh, outside the Middle East, especially the African continent, uh, what are the choice? If not uh, cheap technology and this kind in Africa, mobile phone, uh, the most of mobile phone are not even from Huawei, are for a very not known in the West uh, Chinese provider who produce that in Ethiopia and basically they have all the characteristics that uh, they are needed there. So 5G can be uh, in that area quite uh, an issue and there will be many choices. Uh, staying uh, in the Middle East and North Africa, there is a lot of uh, still uh, maneuverability that country have in choosing. Country that have less maneuverability, for example, are in Europe compared to the Middle East, while uh, the United Kingdom just not long ago uh, is looking at uh, having a balanced approach in having Huawei uh, supplying just a part of the, the, the needed uh, networking technology, but recently say no to everything. And other countries like Italy, for example, after the visit of, uh, of Pompeo, just uh, decided uh, for the moment to avoid using Chinese product. Middle East uh, is still there, is still in the balance. Uh, and we don't have to forget one thing, uh, that uh, with Chinese uh, technology, 
also come a very important uh, uh, technology, software, software, and camera facial recognition. That China is the world leading provider in CCTV camera and security software. Software that thanks to big data enable to have uh, not only uh, more efficient counterterrorist policy, but also uh, a more strict and efficient and in some way economical control of the local population. And that's something that definitely in the, the Gulf and even uh, in, in North Africa have uh, its own appeal. Okay, we, had a, we have a few questions. Let me just ask one of them first for you. Uh, this is from um, Jason, uh, but I'm not sure where he's from because he's not identified himself. Uh, what are your views on China getting involved in resolving diplomatic issues between Qatar and the other Gulf members as a strategic advancement in this region on an economic front? Again, uh, Jason, thank you for the question. Uh, well, I mentioned the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and UAE. Some uh, of the insight that I've been talking to are the same and can be applied to Qatar. But uh, uh, when the, the GCC country started to have friction between Qatar, Saudi and UAE, again, China didn't take part. But you can see some subtle line in between the relationship between Beijing and Doha and Beijing and Riyadh uh, and uh, Abu Dhabi. And this is the fact that uh, China has a strategic partnership with Qatar and a comprehensive strategic partnership with Saudi Arabia and UAE. That is a level above the one with Qatar. And this also can be read as a signal to the fact that if I don't recall the, the year exactly, it was. Uh, 2016 or 2017, there was a joint letter uh, in support of China uh, handling of uh, Xinjiang. And uh, uh, Qatar was um, with uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia signing the letter, but retired the, the approval of the later letter on. So probably this was also uh, a, a signal from China in, in the relationship with, uh, with Qatar. On the other side, the relationship that Qatar had uh, at the beginning with the Muslim Brotherhood and the support uh, of the Muslim Brotherhood created some uh, uh, increasing friction uh, with the People's Republic of China. Uh, but at the moment, still uh, the economic relationship uh, between uh, the two countries are, are, are still there. And uh, surprisingly, Qatar showcased a very strong resilience in uh, uh, opposing to the diplomatic, let's call it diplomatic blockade uh, from uh, the other uh, neighboring uh, countries. I find that your, you know, your comment about uh, Qatar and the issue of the Muslim Brotherhood and the fact that this would not be something the Chinese would be comfortable with actually brings me to a much broader question because um, you know, the Chinese, the Chinese government has, a, has an issue with the Uyghurs. Um, you know, and I'm wondering how this would play out in its efforts to sort of engage or be more of a presence in the Middle East, because surely there will be groups within these regions, and not necessarily the government, or at least not publicly, but I'm sure that there will be opinion groups or various groups, uh, you know, public opinion, uh, that would have issue with its treatment of um, 
of this uh, of this group of this particular group of people you know how are the chinese going to manage that if i can ask if you if you i i'm not asking you to crystal ball but i'm sure that it is something that they have taken into consideration um, you can't just I, simply I, argue that it's an internal issue and it's none of your business you know what i mean no because definitely about religion, you know, on uh, on on this respect the answer from uh, the middle east uh, is quite representative of one fact who is the, the most vocal in terms of country uh, in arab country uh, sorry uh, not arab country uh, muslim uh, country with majority of muslim uh, population uh, on this respect uh, on the security issue inside the uh, autonomous province uh, of uh, xinjiang is turkey is not saudi arabia uh, saudi still has uh, this prominence in global islam but uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, never opposed or showcased officially any kind of critique of what China, of how China was handling uh, the, the issue of Uyghur in, uh, in Xinjiang. And uh, having said that, uh, if I recall correct, there was uh, an interview of uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, during his uh, state visit in Beijing in 2019, and the interview was published by Xinhua, uh, mentioning that the prince, uh, the crown prince, said that China has uh, all the right to take uh, the appropriate counterterrorism and de-extremism extremism measure in, uh, uh, let's say, uh, safeguard his uh, national security. And that was the official message from, from Saudi Arabia. And that's a message that reverberated in all the area. Uh, why Turkey is jumping in? Uh, mostly for a geopolitical reason, but also to the fact that Uyghur, uh, it's a Turkic language minority that have cultural link uh, in the region with the area. And surprisingly, there are not much uh, uh, raising voice from other area outside the Middle East, and I'm referring to Central Asia, because uh, in Xinjiang, in Uzbekistan, in Kazakhstan, you still have an overlapping of minority in that area that are not only Uyghur, but are from Xinjiang, but are Kazakh, uh, and then even a minor part are Tajik or uh, Uzbek or Kyrgyz. Uh, so, uh, getting back to your question, uh, up to now, uh, the vocal part from the Middle East uh, on this issue uh, is not there. Mm. Okay. Um, Jason, you had asked three questions, but I don't quite understand your second question. So, I don't know if you want to actually unmute and ask Alex the question directly, because I'm not quite clear what you're asking him about. Hello? Okay. Uh, he doesn't seem to be responding. Uh, are there any other questions? Okay, James, you have the floor. James, you have the floor. Hi. So, Hi. Okay, we can hear you now. Good. I, I wanted to make a comment rather than a question, if I may, on the Uyghur issue. 
uh, and two things. One is the 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 issues that are fr that are friction between Qatar and uh, and China are much more structural when it comes to the Uyghurs. Uh, the Qatar is the only Gulf state that is an autocracy, but actually says that it promotes things like human rights. It's also the only uh, Gulf state that has a political asylum law, which last year became an issue when it was an Uyghur stranded at Doha airport that the Qataris initially wanted to return to China, but then uh, arranged for a third country to go to. The other point I want to make in terms of public opinion in the Gulf with regard, or in the, in the, in the Middle East, certainly with regard to, uh, to the Uyghurs is, as autocratic as Gulf states may be, they listen very carefully to what the public mood is. And the public mood in, uh, with regard to the Uyghurs is not one of concern. In fact, if you go back to prior to the pandemic, Muslim tourists to, uh, to Xinjiang were on the increase, despite what was going on there. What the driver in terms of the Muslim world is going to be, if there is a driver in a, in a switch on, um, uh, on uh, public attitudes towards the Uyghur issue, it's going to be in countries where there is an anti-Chinese sentiment. And then I probably think we would be looking more at Central Asia. And if that were to take, uh, take on any significance, that would put Middle Eastern states under, under pressure. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Dorsey, thank you very much for your comment. Uh, uh, you give me the line uh, to promote uh, my my next lecture that is at the end of this series that is talk about Central Asia. So I will comment on that uh, on 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 the next uh, talk. Uh, let me take uh, uh, from where you ended. Uh, Gulf crisis. Uh, during the Gulf crisis, yes, there was more structural issue between Qatar and China in, in relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood. But we don't have to forget uh, that uh, at the time, and even now, as I mentioned before, China was balancing between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And uh, none of the two countries is in a position to force China in taking a side. This is the, uh, the same. It can be applied to the GCC struggle, internal struggle. While the PRI appeals to all parties, the economic investment and promise made by the BRI plays both well in Qatar, in UAE, in Saudi Arabia, and nobody is questioning China or asking China to take a stance between one side or the other side. But uh, if we want to look at quite interesting, uh, let's say, uh, uh, perception of China and the Middle East, is the fact that China has started since the inception of the GCC to try to have a free trade agreement with the GCC country. The free trade agreement also has been stopped by one issue, uh, taxation of petrochemical product. Beside this issue, uh, during Xi Jinping, uh, after President Xi Jinping visit uh, in the Middle East, uh, from 2016 to 2017, there was a perception that uh, the FTA, the free trade agreement, was almost there. And the Chinese were adamant just a few days of the start of the problem between Qatar and Saudi Arabia that FTA was going on. So basically, it tells us that they were totally unaware 
on what was going to happen in terms of the GCC internal confrontation. And of course now, after 2017, uh, the whole FTA agreement idea is out of the picture. But then this, uh, with Qatar especially, created other dynamic. In Qatar, with the need to be his own security provider, and China uh, already earlier, previous to, to this confrontation, if I recall correctly, was uh, in 2014, started uh, to sell uh, uh, short-range ballistic missile to Qatar. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, Qatar has to shift all its airlines uh, uh, that were no more able to cross in Saudi airspace to Iranian airspace. And it can tell you already something about uh, the, the shift. The problem, uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia has been always there. There was, uh, let's say, a kind of uh, simmering tension due to a power asymmetry between uh, the, the two countries. And at the end, uh, to the fact that probably Saudi and UAE, they were counting more on the action from the United States, uh, this similar intention just surfaced with the result that uh, we, all, uh, we all see now. Great, thank you. Okay, there was this very interesting question, and it's probably going to be the last question because we, we are coming close to the end of the session. Uh, let me read it out to you and then you can answer. Uh, I thought this was a very good question. You noted that the U.S.-Saudi alliance is based on interests, not values, whereas the Sino-Saudi relationship is also interest-based, but the values gap is not as pronounced. The China model of a strong state focused on economic development and political repression is very attractive to many Middle East countries, Saudi included. Do you think that this lends the Sino-Saudi relationship an advantage over the US-Saudi one in that China and Saudi can work together on several issues that democratic US cannot, at least to the same degree? That's a great question. Uh, well, I agree. There's uh, a long answer you'll have to give now. <laughs> I agree uh, on both relationships are not based on core value. But the problem with the United States uh, is that uh, there are more, there are less, uh, let's say with China, there are less problems. So uh, the Chinese uh, relation with Saudi is less confrontational. Uh, there is no need to change on the status quo. There is no need uh, to discuss how the Saudi Arabia uh, manage its own internal affair. For example, we are looking now still uh, at uh, quite close relationship between Washington and Riyadh, thanks to the fact that there are personal relationship between the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman and Trump. But then in November, if there is going to be a change in the leadership in the United States, this kind of direct connection are going to be missing. And then a lot of questions are going to arise in the relationship between uh, US and Saudi Arabia, starting with human rights, uh, with the assassination of the Washington Post colonist Jamal Khashoggi, and so on. With China, uh, I cannot say that the relationship uh, is easier, but definitely the relationship uh, is uh, less complicated. Uh, when uh, you have a relationship that is just based uh, in economic interest, uh, this relationship can shift very fast, changing with economic. At the moment, still, uh, there is this uh, synergy between Saudi Arabia and China. 
and synergy from oil, from investment, from the South Division 2030 that overlap pretty well with the Belt and Road Initiative and still to some kind of support that the Saudi can give to China in terms of their positioning as a prominent, uh, let's say, uh, as Saudi prominence in uh, global Islam. Having said that, uh, if there is a small change in this economic relationship, then all uh, the overall relationship uh, is going to change quite abruptly. And uh, we don't have to forget uh, that uh, prior to the energy interest that China started to have in the Middle East uh, in early 90s, uh, the relationship between China and the Gulf country was uh, mediocre at best. There were no value, no economical interest, no economic entanglement. But now, uh, in the near future, the Sino-Saudi digital cooperation, it's going to be quite interesting to see uh, if it's progressing, how this is going to mark the future uh, relationship, foreign relationship between the two countries. And uh, this, uh, of course, is going to be a friction point between China and the US and between Saudi Arabia and the US. But as I said before, several times, Gulf Monarchy and other countries that have relationship with the United States used China as a bargaining chip. If you are not selling me the latest uh, unmanned combat drone, then we are going to ask China to sell it. And it's not just the case now, just uh, if you remember what I mentioned during the Iraq and Iran war, when uh, Saudi Arabia was perceiving that SCAD missile from both sides could be uh, a threat, a security issue, start to acquire Chinese Dongfang missile. Qatar in 2014, when it started to perceive that uh, Saudi is not going to be a security actor uh, supporting Qatar, started to increase uh, uh, its uh, hardware import, military hardware import from China. And again, we are talking about missile, this time short range ballistic missile. Uh, so um, Riyadh, is hedging his position considering the US rebal security rebalancing and US uh, interest in the region, that's for sure. How long, uh, how far this honeymoon with China is going to go? Uh, it depends uh, on so many uh, factors that uh, is not possible to foresee for a long term uh, a kind of scenario, but definitely at the moment uh, the balancing act uh, from economic and security is from both sides, from the Saudi and from the Chinese. And we are going to see uh, what is going to happen uh, if there is uh, a change in November in the United States and in the relation between the United States and Iran. And then it will affect how China, Saudi Arabia, and all the Middle East uh, uh, security architecture is going to, to be reframed and, uh, and changed. Uh, and I hope I have answered uh, this question. Yeah, I think you have. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a good discussion. Um, and uh, let me just uh, make a few points before we conclude. First of all, join me in thanking uh, Dr. Alessandro Adino for a very interesting session um, and some very interesting perspectives about the Chinese role in, in the Middle East region. Um, I personally did not know that there was quite a long history before that. Uh, and it's a 20th, 20th century sort of relationship. Well, I found that very interesting because it does put a different 
perspective and a different color to to China's presence in the in this part in the Middle East. Um, I think we also set the tone nicely for next week's session, which will actually look at um, the U.S. in the region. Uh, that is always the big sixty-four thousand dollar question, uh, you know. And as Alex has pointed out, there's been many, there's been much debate about the U.S. withdrawing from from the Middle East, and that isn't the case. I mean, I, I agree with him that they are not, but what they are doing is reverting to being the offshore balancer. So um, I ask you all to join us next week, uh, same time uh, for, the, for our Middle East 101 sessions where we take a look at the other big external player, which is the United States. I thank you all for your time and the very good questions, and we will see you all next week. Thanks a lot, Thank Alex. you very much. And thank thank you, you very much, everyone, for your questions. Bye.